right, I guess we'll get started. <laughs> uh, you got your Bibles open to Acts chapter 19. We're going to pick up at verse 21. Let's bow our hearts in prayer as we turn our attention to God's Word. Father, once again, here we are on a Sunday morning, gathered together not by chance, but by your sovereign hand, by the leading of your Holy Spirit, the wooing that draws us not only to Jesus, but draws us to one another. I ask now, Lord, that as we open this part of chapter 19 in Acts, in your very word, that you would speak to us as well-loved children, that we would have an awareness that we are gathered around at the feet of Jesus. May your spirit do what only your spirit can do, convict us of our sin and assure us of our salvation in Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so Steve said um, this is our third and final Sunday in Acts 19, and that is true, God willing. But as we jump into this passage, I just want to quickly recap <laughs> the very first 20 chapters in Acts 19. We spent two Sundays on those, um, and we saw in those 20 verses that Christians are, by definition, those who are baptized in the Spirit. From this point forward, to be a Christian man or woman means that you have been baptized in the Spirit. And at the same time, we saw in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, this same church that he wrote a little bit later, he wrote to them, Christians are, by definition, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they need to be ongoingly filled with the Spirit. Both things are true. Christians in Galatians Chapter 5, we're told that while we are baptized in the Spirit upon conversion, we must keep in step with the Spirit. We must walk by the Spirit. So that brings us to verse 21. In verse 21 to 22, we see that Paul is on his way to Rome. Did you notice that? He's taking a circuitous path. Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Verse 21. It's worth noting as we press into this passage that Paul was not interested in a sightseeing tour of Rome. It wasn't like, gosh, I sure would like to see that and maybe post some selfies to my Instagram. Instead, what Paul had in mind was this divine appointment that awaited him. See, Paul strongly desired to see the gospel reach Rome. That's what's going on here. He wanted the gospel to go all the way to the very epicenter of the global superpower, the Roman Empire. That's what it means. He wants to see Rome. And then Paul had this vision that, um, and this desire and this passion that we're going to see unfold later on. And if we ever preach through the letter to the Romans, Paul's desire was not only that the gospel would go as far as the epicenter of the empire in Rome, but that it would then go all the way to the outermost part of the empire in Spain. This was Paul's passion and his desire. 
You might read this and say, but why the circuitous path? If he wanted to go to Rome, why does he go through Macedonia, Achaia, to Jerusalem? What's going on there? Well, what he's doing here is he's collecting that offering that he instructed the churches to take up for the poor in Jerusalem. Do you remember that over the last few weeks? And in so doing, he sends ahead his friends Timothy and Erastus to gather this collection. That's verse 22. Having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. What I want you to see here is that Paul was a man gripped with a godly ambition. His entire life was driven by this as the overarching theme, as the impetus, as the flame, as the fire. He wanted to see people converted to Jesus Christ, worshiping God, and for the glory of the gospel to cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. He had a godly ambition. Not a personal one. So as we're moving through Acts here, we get to this point in the account. Paul's still in Ephesus. And you'll notice that there is an escalating plot tension. Did you feel it? There's this growing question that hangs over this chapter. Paul has this godly ambition to see the gospel go all the way to the ends of the empire. But would it happen? That's the question that hangs over it. Would the gospel reach the ends of the world? Or would there be forces that would ultimately confound the propagation of the gospel? Would the state be used as an implement to try to prevent the spreading of the gospel through people who rise up and try to motivate government powers against Christians? How would this go? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's our passage this morning. Friends, as we jump in, there are two things that I want you to glean from this passage. The first one is that there is a stark difference between a godly ambition in life and a personal ambition. That's the first thing we're going to see. And the second thing that I want us to see is um, how should Christian men and women interact with the government and the state? What should be the relationship between a Christian man and woman and the government? Okay, so those are the two things we're going to look at. Let's jump into verses 23 to 27 and see a godly ambition or a personal ambition. How's verse 23 for an understatement in Scripture, right? Look at verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. I want you to imagine this scene in Ephesus. We are hot on the heels of the whole spectacle with the sons of Sceva. Do you remember that a couple of verses ago? These sons of Sceva who were hucksters and peddlers and magicians and trying to capitalize on what the Holy Spirit was doing in Ephesus through Paul. So they went and they tried casting out demons because they saw Paul do that, but Paul did it in the power of the Spirit and in Jesus' name. They were trying to do it as charlatans. And it didn't work out very well for them. They ended up bruised and battered and running down the streets naked. So that's what's just happened. And we've also been told that just a couple of verses ago, 
Not only were there the sons of Sceva with naked, bruised guys running down the streets screaming, but there was also a massive wholesale book burning. So many people turned away from the false gods and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ that their lives were deeply and radically altered and changed. They then took all of their magical books, all of their books about sorcery, and burned them in the streets. Verse 23, Scripture says, There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Look, the gospel message that Paul and his friends took to Ephesus was flipping this mighty metropolis on its head. One converted person at a time. You know, that's how it happens. The gospel works in just that way. Individual people who are converted to the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit then become a force for good, not only in their own life, but in their family, and then not only in their family, but in their community, and then not only in their community, but in their city and in their country and beyond. That's how the gospel works. Brief sidebar for context. So Ephesus was a major metropolis at the time. And it was a city that was notable for at least two things. The first one is that it was um, home to a shrine to Artemis, the god Artemis. This god Artemis was also known as the, the goddess Diana. And the second thing that was notable about Ephesus was that it housed one of the world's largest libraries at the time dedicated to her. Ephesus was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this temple to Artemis and its library. And the spirit-empowered message of Paul and his missionary team comes to this great metropolis city, this city that is devoted to Artemis, to Diana, to the goddess of fertility and hunting, and radically flips it on its head. It causes so many people in this city to turn away from false idols and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true God. That's what Luke refers to here in this passage as the way. You know, friends, that is one way to think about being a Christian man or woman. To be a person of the way. It's a new way of living. It's a new way of thinking and being and feeling and desiring. It's a new life. And here we see in Ephesus that this new life that Paul and the missionaries preached caused no little disturbance, <laughs> right? It completely and radically changed the entire city. There were so many people in Ephesus who were rescued from the futility of their idolatry and brought to the truth that the city was in an uproar. Are we bold enough to pray for and to believe for that for our city? Can you imagine? 
if Burlington was so radically transformed for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it could be said like it was said of Ephesus, there was no little disturbance in that city because of the way. You know, what does that look like? Well, I think there are about 180,000 people in the city of Burlington. What if 10% of them were saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and on fire for Jesus? What if 10% of them were so radically converted that they turned away from all of their idolatry and cast it off to the side and began living completely new lives that were marked by faith and trust and hope in Jesus? While I was reading and studying through this passage this week, I was challenged to begin to pray for that. So, you know, the, the, the city of Ephesus had a patron god, um, and her name was Artemis, Diana. She was the goddess of fertility and the goddess of hunting. If you're going to say, what is the patron god or goddess of the city of Burlington, what do you think it would be? What is the greatest idol in our city today that sucks people into futility and blinds them to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the false narrative that people live out of? What do they use their time and their energy to worship? Well, another way to approach that same question would be to say, what is the thing that demands the most and gives the least? Because that's what idols do. They overpromise and they underdeliver. Can you think of some of those things, some of those narratives in our city? Maybe nothing has changed. Maybe there's nothing new under the sun. Maybe like Ephesus, the false god, the idol of our city, is the goddess of fertility and the goddess of hunting. Think about it. A city that seems to be progressively giving itself over more and more to sexual perversion. A city that is marked by avid hunters. <laughs> and I don't mean people who hunt for sport. I mean the fact that so many of us in Burlington wake up every single morning living out of this idolatrous false narrative that we are our own providers finally. We forget that the Lord God is our provision. Well, maybe, maybe the God of our city, the idol of our city is still Artemis. Maybe so. But good news. If Ephesus can be flipped on its head for the gospel and by the gospel, so too can Burlington be. All right, so let's keep going. What Luke calls here no little disturbance, uh, we're told that it was initiated by a guy named Demetrius, the silversmith. And here's our, here's our first point. It's a point of contrast. On the one hand, we've already seen Paul, who was driven by a godly ambition. He wanted to see the gospel reach the ends of the earth. And now, on the other hand, by contrast, we meet this silversmith named Demetrius. Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Verse 25, these he gathered together and the workmen in their similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth and you see and hear 
that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods, and that there is danger not only that this trade of ours would come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Look, this guy, Demetrius, he's clever. But if Paul is an example to us of a godly ambition, then Demetrius is the counterexample of a selfish ambition. When, when you read how he lays out his complaint and his concern to the people of Ephesus, in particular the craftsmen, he doesn't set it out in terms of doctrine or belief. He sets it out in terms of raw microeconomics. How's this going to hit our pocketbook? How's this going to hit our bank account? And when you read something like this, you're reminded that you can never underestimate the power of selfish ambition to bring about destruction. Selfish ambition will always point in the wrong direction, and it often comes under the guise of virtue, doesn't it? Look, Demetrius was smart when he has this selfish plot for his own selfish gain. He um, doesn't overtly play to their covetousness. Instead, he takes a more subtle approach or a more subtle tact. Verse 27, he says, hey guys, like, there's this, this preacher, his name's Paul, he's going throughout all of Asia. He's saying that our work is not, is not useful, it's actually futile and in vain. He's going to bring our trade into disrepute. He's going to bring the great temple of Artemis into disrepute. He might even undermine Artemis herself, her majesty. Such is the craftiness of self-interest. Demetrius is standing in opposition to the way. He's doing it for his own selfish ends, but he's trying to justify it by cloaking it in some greater virtue. And so as the verses unfold, we now see that Demetrius is going to rile up the entire city. He uses his cleverness. He uses his position of influence. And it's all used to try to shore up his own personal fortunes. Demetrius is so clever and so sly, he um, claims to be serving Artemis and the people of Ephesus. But he's really using Artemis and using the people to serve himself. Listen, when you encounter someone who is brash with selfish ambition, there are few things so repugnant. Now, earlier in the chapter and throughout Acts, Paul stands in contrast to this as an example of godly ambition. He gives himself to the propagation and spreading of the gospel. He uses every moment, he uses his gifts, he uses his skills, he uses his profound intellect 
to see the name of Jesus great and glorious among all people. So there it is, the contrast. Paul, godly ambition. Demetrius, selfish ambition. It struck me again this week that far too many Christians have bought into a lie. We see how ugly and how repugnant selfish ambition is, not only in Scripture, but in day-to-day life. And we bought into this lie that the opposite of selfish ambition is some form of passivity, right? We're like, look, I never want to be that brash, selfish, ambitious guy who's looking out for himself. And so then what I have to do instead is just be completely passive. That's a lie. The opposite of selfish ambition is not passivity, it is godly ambition. Paul was driven to the nth degree. Paul was all go, right? I mean, this guy went and went and went for the gospel. He gave it all. Even in the face of opposition, we're told that he was stoned, left for dead, whipped, beaten, flogged, dragged out of the city. He was shipwrecked. And yet he persisted with a godly ambition. Look, you need look no further than Paul to see the opposite of selfish ambition, which is ugly, is godly ambition. He marshaled all of his strength, all of his learning. He brought um, intentional strategy to bear with this godly ambition. Paul's deepest desire was that the Lord God would use him so that all people of the world would hear the good news of Jesus and be reconciled to their God and be saved. He gave himself to it. All right, so what does this mean for us today? We now see the contrast between the two. What does this mean? Well, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, how do I know if I have a godly ambition or a selfish ambition? How do, how do I figure that one out? How do I know if I'm like Paul or like Demetrius? Demetrius, who ends up getting hoisted with his own petard. <laughs> I don't really even know what that means. Just a saying that I like. If you know what it means to be hoisted on your own petard, come talk to me afterwards. How do you know? I want to give you this simple metric to figure it out. Selfish ambition uses God to serve self. Godly ambition uses self to serve God and his people. See the difference? If you look at your life and the thing that motivates you is that you are chiefly and primarily in it for yourself and you're looking even at your walk with the Lord and saying, what can God do for me? Maybe that's selfish ambition. 
You know, we're reading through the Bible together as a church on this five-day-a-week reading plan, and it struck me in Galatians, which is where we've been the last few days, how often Paul refers to himself as a slave of Christ. That's a godly ambition. To look at your life and to say absolutely everything about me, every desire, every strength, every um, strategy, everything that I bring to bear is ultimately and finally about serving the Lord God. That's a godly ambition. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to convict you so that you can repent and course correct of selfish ambition. Uh, this afternoon, I'm going to go home and I'm going to watch two football games. You guys? Yeah, Championship Sunday. Um, I always joke that I, when I'm watching football, I cheer for the guys and the teams that have the most Christians on them. And the 49ers. <laughs> I'm a lifelong 49ers fan. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm only half joking. Watch this afternoon how many of these players in their post-game interviews are going to take their platform of their position and their influence as, as sports superstars and point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, I used to think that it was so cheesy, right? I used to watch that and kind of go, bah-ha-ha, ha, like, what, how does God figure that one out? You got a Christian on this side, you got a Christian on this side. That's not the point. The point is that these men are exposing to the entire world that although they play football, although they are paid millions and millions of dollars, they see that as a means to an end to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a godly ambition. In a different way and to a different degree, do you do the same? Look, to be driven in your career is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. God has given you desires and skills in the marketplace and in your trade or your skill. But do you see those things as means to an end or as ends in themselves? Here's what I mean. If you look at your career or your vocation and you see it as an end in itself... You're like, man, I'm totally motivated in this because I want to accumulate more stuff. At least I want to have more stuff than my neighbors. Then that is a selfish ambition, seeing it as an end in itself. However, if you look at your drive in your vocation and you say, man, this is a means to an end, a means to a godly end. I want to go hard because I want to provide for my family. I want to resource gospel ministry and gospel work. Well, friends, that's a godly ambition, not a selfish one. Scripture includes many people who had resources and were actually wealthy. And it presents them in a positive light as disciples of Jesus. You know, just a few weeks ago, we talked about Lydia and how she became a benefactor of Paul's ministry through her trade. We read in the gospel accounts of a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, and he was actually very wealthy. And when the Lord Jesus 
was taken down off the cross, they needed a place to put his body. And Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man, he said, well, I have a family tomb, use mine. It's, it's not that you as a Christian man or woman, in order to avoid selfish ambition, have to become passive. It's that you press into a different ambition, a godly ambition, that still is driven, but uses what you're doing as a means to a godly end. For yourself, for your family, and for the world. Well, this is still just our first point, and I'm going to conclude with this. Pray that the Lord would light a fire in your heart today. Repent of any selfish ambition that serves the idols of this world. Repent of those ways that you use God or use the gods to serve yourself. And pray instead for a godly ambition that you would marshal all of your strength and all of your resources and all of your strategy to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our first point. Let's look at verses 28 to 41. In verses 28 to 31, there's a rioting crowd. It's been stirred up by Demetrius. They've dragged Gaius and Aristarchus into the theater to put them on trial as representatives of the way. We're told that the Disciples would not allow Paul. Paul was eager and champing at the bit to get into the theater. He wanted to give a defense. The disciples wouldn't let him. Pandemonium begins to break out in the city and in the theater, and we're told that confusion reigns as the crowd chants for two hours. Verse 34, great is Artemis. Idolatry carries with it a sort of a Stockholm Syndrome, if you know what I mean. People become enslaved to idols that imprison them and hold them captive. And yet somehow there is a twist or a warp to the human heart and the sinful affections that will fall in love with the captor. That's what's happening here. Two hours, great as Artemis. Verse 35, enter the city clerk. Okay, the city clerk makes four points. Those four points, his basic bottom line is um, they've done nothing wrong. Everything is okay. As a matter of procedure, if you want to pursue this any further, private matters go to the proconsul, and more serious matters of a public nature should go to the legal assembly. And his fourth warning is this. He says to the crowd, look guys, this is perilously, tenuously close to an illegal riot. That's what he warns them. And he said, you guys are yourselves in danger of being charged. All right. I want, I want to push into this one a little bit, okay? Um, and this one might cut a little close to the bone because it speaks to present-day issues. I, I don't ever remember in my entire life seeing 
so many protests as what I've seen over the last three or four years. Do you? It seems like everywhere I look, I'm seeing protests, and some of the protests are clearly violent and illegal. They're given to arson and theft and stealing, and others seem to be peaceable and friendly, just trying to lobby for change. And so when you come to a passage like this, I find myself asking the question, well, how should one protest? Well, look, the city clerk here, he's a minister of the Lord God in the civil magistrate, and here he gets it right. He, he instructs the crowd that if you're going to protest, you must do so legally and not illegally. Uh, for Canadians, this means that there are ways to do it that are provided for in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It means that we as Christians ought to use the mechanisms that God has ordained within our system. Um, we, we vote. We can write emails to our MPs and MPPs, we organize, we lobby, we use our rights as citizens for the public good. That's what it means to be a Christian citizen. We, prom we, we use those mechanisms to promote godliness and to restrain evil. Paul is, in a few chapters, going to be an example of this. He will claim his rights as a Roman citizen, not in order to save or prolong his own life, but he does so so that he can have an audience in the highest court and bring the gospel to the highest court of the empire. Look, as Christian men and women, we ought to use the God-given means that we have at our disposal as citizens. So yes, the picture here is to be politically involved, wise, and savvy. This caution from the city clerk rings true today. It's pointed at the crowd in Ephesus, but it's true in Canada in 2024. Protest, not riot. So the city clerk, he dismisses the assembly. He sends them all home with their tails between their legs. Now, did you ever wonder what was Paul's point in including this detail? Well, I think Luke wanted you to see this when Luke was recording this. What was Luke's point in including this detail? Um, Luke wanted you to see that the Roman Empire had no legal case against the way in general or Paul in particular. This we've seen over the last couple of chapters. It was only a couple chapters ago where in Corinth, the proconsul Gallio refused to hear the case against Paul and the case against his message. It's like it has no legal grounds. There's nothing illegal about the way. In Ephesus, this town clerk dismisses the charges as merely emotional and personal economic complaints. Here's Luke's point. The preaching of the gospel back here in the Roman Empire is not illegal. I want you just to, to go back to the, our opening question. The building plot tension was gathered around this one question. Will the gospel reach the ends of the earth 
or will it be opposed? That's why Luke includes this. Because Luke wants you to see that there is a cultural milieu where the gospel can increase and multiply. And here, that cultural milieu is being shown as cool reasonableness. Well, the gospel will reach the ends of the empire. It will reach the ends of the world in ways that Paul could never have imagined. Verse 41. And when he, the city clerk, had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Here in this moment in Ephesus, we see that the Christians can expect this cool reasonableness from the state. And so the gospel now is once again free to travel all across the empire and all across Europe. Here's the point of application. Friends, I think that that is all that we as Christians need today too. Look, there are, there are two potential errors when it comes to Christians and their thoughts on the relationship between the gospel and the state. On the one hand, we can err by thinking gospel propagation only happens if all the right laws are in place to further a Christian worldview. And so we see lobbying of the government as the primary means by which we propagate the gospel. That is an error. But the equal and opposite error is when we as Christians say, we don't really care what the government does. We just take a position of saying, well, you know what, the government can pass whatever legislation, whatever laws it wants. I'm just going to preach the gospel. That's also a mistake. There is within the Western Christian Church right now a movement that would seek to lobby the governments of the West to pass laws that are in keeping with and built on a foundation of Christian principles. Now, if you'd have been talking to me a few years ago, I'd have said, well, I think that that's foolhardy, right? Misguided. I think we need to preach the gospel and let the state do whatever it will. But there are flaws in that logic, and I've come to see them. Look, it is an error to believe that any laws can be passed that are irreligious or not based on some form of morality and ethical assumption. All laws are fundamentally religious. So as Christian men and women, where we live in a country where God has given us these means to interact with our state, to vote, to write to our MPs, to organize and to lobby, why wouldn't we want the laws to be based on Christian worldview? If they're not based on a Christian worldview, at best they're going to be based on secular humanism, and most likely they're going to devolve into satanic tyranny. That sounds like an overstatement, right? Well... I don't think so. It's not hyperbole. Just look at the history of the West. The West was 
this great experiment where Christian men and women came over and said, let's pioneer countries that seek to be based on Christian virtue and principle. And what happened? Well, it turned into the greatest society ever in the history of the world. By every measure, not perfect, in need of constant incremental change and reformation, but based on Christian principles, the West has become the greatest place. I say that based on our approach to justice, our care for the marginalized and the needy, our development of technology, all kinds of ways. And so as Christian men and women, we ought to use the means that God has given us to appeal to the civil magistrates in order that laws might be based on Christian values and principles. But the fact of the matter is here in Acts 19, and we'll close with this, we see a picture of what we as citizens, Christian citizens, should hope for and pray for at the very least. A cool reasonableness from the state. While at the same time, we ought to labor for the best. To have God's appointed, ordained civil leaders who know, love, and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Elected officials who represent the people best by serving the Lord. People who are steeped in and formed by God's revelation in the Bible. Now before you accuse me of preaching politics from the pulpit, I'm not. It is not the Christian call to be right-wing or conservative. It is the Christian call to seek godliness and to use the means given to us by God to see that happen in our state. Because not only is it the best for human flourishing, but it's been empirically demonstrated to be the best in human civilization. Friends, we're going to close chapter 19 with this. Pursue and seek a godly ambition in your life. And pray and labor for a cultural moment that's marked by what it says in Acts 19, verse 20. The gospel increasing and mightily prevailing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time in your word. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would convict us of our sin and draw us to our Savior, Jesus, daily conforming us and transforming us into his image. Lord, I pray that you would shape our ambitions, that whatever we do, we would do it with all of our heart as unto the Lord. And that you would teach us how to be faithful Christian citizens. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.